Okay, it's so good to see you all. Um, it's so good to hear uh, how God is blessing in your lives right now, uh, taking care of you, watching over you. It's so good to be able to have a good lunch provided for us. We want to make sure that when we pray, we thank the people that made this and the God that provided it for us. And uh, we're going to get into our study. We're studying the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. And we're going to be in Luke for quite some time now. We're going to get into some parabolic teachings, not today, but in the... Uh, well, we actually, we will get into some parabolic teachings today. And so we'll be in the book of Luke for quite some time. So if it, on your own, if you want to do any studying uh, to prepare for these classes, we'll be in Luke 14, Luke 15, Luke 16 for uh, for quite some time in the future. But uh, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Ask God to bless our time together as we begin to study his word. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is so good uh, to be among your people, to study your word and to grow in your truth. Um, We recognize that it is uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Holy Spirit that we are able to receive and believe these truths. And I just pray that you will help us today to do that. I pray that you will help us take these truths, bear them deep in our hearts. Uh, that we might not sin against you. I pray that you will help us not only to receive and believe these truths, but Lord, as an act of faith, as an act of belief, that you'll give us the power, the strength, and the willingness to go and share these truths with others. Um, You know each and every person in this room. You know our desires and our needs. Um, You know our faults. You know our gifts. You You know us inside and out. You know us better than we know ourselves. And my prayer, Lord, is that you will use this time to grow us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in the life of the harmony of the Gospels, we're in Luke chapter 14. The life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. We're in Luke 14. And if y'all remember the last couple of weeks we've been together, we've been talking about the narrow path. We've been talking about how salvation is a narrow path and it's a path that many don't ever find. And we, we found that, that God uh, does save people, God does love, and God sent his son to save people. But despite the fact that the truth, the gospel is being proclaimed to the world, uh, the world in general has an opposite reaction uh, to the word of God that God's sheep do. When God's word is spoken, light comes into the room and the darkness scatters, right? But we also learned that he has his sheep and that his sheep hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, what do they do? They come, they come and they follow him. And so a follower of Christ is known as a disciple. And the root word for disciple is discipline. And so the reality is, is that our walk uh, with God should be a discipline. We should have times of prayer. We should have times of study. We should have times of communion and fellowship with other believers. We should have times of worship, right? When there should be a day set apart that we go and worship God. And all of these things are disciplines of our faith. And we should, if God's faith is in us, God's faith should be coming out of us. And we should be expressing that love not only to our Father, but to our neighbor as well, right? Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so last week when we were together, the last time we were together, we talked about Jesus weeping over the nation of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killed the prophets, that stoned those that were sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. So Jesus was sitting looking down over the city and he was weeping. He was crying for the city. And why was he crying? Well, a lot of people say he was crying 
because the people in the city would not believe him. But that's not what this passage says. Look again at what it says. Uh, This is Luke 13, verses 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather what? Your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. So what was heartbreaking to him, his people, he came to his own, and his whole own people did not receive him. The religious leaders in the community, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the very ones that had the oracles of God, that had Genesis to Malachi, right? The very ones that had all of the prophecies that proclaimed who Jesus was, that proclaimed that he was the Messiah, that proclaimed the fashion and form that he was going to come in when he came. They had all of that. They had a religious system of worship that God had provided for them, the animal sacrifices. They had They had it all. God gave them everything that they needed to know God. But instead of them allowing that gift to empower them to be a light to the world, instead of allowing the light of Jesus to shine through them to the whole world, they used all of that, that those gifts that God had given them as a light to shine on them. Look at me. Look at how religious I am. Look how good I am at following the traditions. Look at all the candles I'm burning. Look at all the incense I'm burning. Look at all of, look how I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't hang around with those that do, right? Look at me, look at me. And so instead of using the gifts that God had provided for his people, they used it as a way to uh, lift themselves up instead of lifting God up for the world to see. And so Jesus is now weeping. Why? Because it says he wanted to gather their children together under his wings, right? And that's, that's, God, that's a metaphor. What do I mean when I say that's a metaphor? For him gathering his people. Yeah, he said he wants to gather it. So does Jesus, as a man, have wings like a bird? No. Is he saying he wants to reach out with his hands that are like bird's wings and grab all the people and cover them in feathers? No, he's using a metaphor. He's using, remember, if you were in English. Protection type metaphor. Yeah, an analogy. So when you were in high school, if if any of y'all remember, you had a definition for what is a simile and a metaphor, right? right? A simile is using like or as as a way to compare two opposite things. And make them one. Right. And and it's just like you said. What did you say it was? That's an analogy. It's saying in the same way that a mother hen covers her eggs with her feathers to protect them, God reaches out in his sovereignty and in his love and in his grace and protects those that are his. And what Jesus is saying, how often I wanted to gather your children together, but you would not have it. You see what he's saying there? He's not saying it was the kids that wouldn't come. He was saying it was the parents that wouldn't let them come. Now again, parents in the sense that these are the elders of the of Judaism. We get a good picture of what the church was at Christ's time due to this. But it's it's like, was it like that all along? 
It didn't start that way with Moses. No. Well, it did. Moses had doubts, doubted God. God had well, to convince him. He's talking about. And not only that, but when he went to the people, remember what he went to Pharaoh and uh, and the and the Pharaoh increased all of their workload, and they were like, "Who are you? You know, why did you come in here and stir up all of this, these problems for us?" But Moses didn't have wealth. Moses was not the elite. Right. But he did have the message of uh, emancipation. He had the message of freedom. And he had the was, message of God's grace. And that's what he presented. I yeah, mean, and they rejected it. Well, as soon as they got outside the city, they were happy for a few minutes, but as soon as they got outside the city and they were standing in that river before he divided the sea and Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them, they were, started cursing him out saying, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? <laughs> right. So you're right, though, David, in the sense that, so watch this. The nation of Israel, the religious structure of the uh, Jewish cultic system. Now, when I say Jewish cultic, remember the word cult in Latin means worship. So when I say the Jewish cultic system, what am I talking about? The Levitical priest, the worship system, the, the old covenant, the old law. And so the reality is that the Old Testament Israel is a metaphor for the New Testament church. Do we act the same way? We're guilty of the same sins. We, we, we do the same thing. And so Paul actually tells us that in 1 Corinthians. He tells us, he said, these things were given to you as an ensample or example so that you would not make the same mistakes that they made. So yes, in a sense, Israel, the nat- natural Israel, if you will, the genetic seed of Abraham, is a metaphor for the spiritual seed of Abraham, which is the church. And there are people in the Old Testament that were believers that were actually not the genetic seed of Abraham. What do I mean by that? Well, from Adam to Abraham, that was 1,400 years, and none of those people were circumcised or had the covenant promise of Abraham. But they did have the covenant promise of Genesis 3.15, which said that one day the woman was going to have a baby that was going to crush the serpent's head. So the gospel message was in mysterious form, and even at that time, at an early, and people believed on that. But the Israel, the physical Israel that we read of in the Old Testament, is actually a metaphorical expression of, and they're real people. They were real people that really lived and really had these problems and really had these flaws and really had God's grace upon them. But in the same way that they were physically real, that, that same reality applies to the people of God now, does it not? Yeah. And watch this. There are also people in the spiritual Israel or the church that look like the church, but they're not of the church. Well, today. Today, well, it was the same way then. There were a lot of people in the Old Testament that the Bible says that they were circumcised in the flesh, but they were not circumcised in the heart. But that's that's wherever power accumulates, you're going to find corruption. Wherever you find fallen man, you're going to find corruption. That's exactly right. So think about that. In the Old Testament, you had people that were physically as Israel as you could get, circumcised on the eighth day. That's what Paul said, right? And a Pharisee of the Pharisee. Physically on the outside, they are the people of God. Physically on the outside. 
but their heart was never circumcised. So what does that mean? They're not truly the children of God. Well, in the New Testament, you have a lot of people who are circumcised of heart that don't wear three-piece suits and burn incense and, and go to church every week and, and uh, you know, that do the things that we do as Christians, but their heart is circumcised and they are being conformed to the image of Christ. On the outside, some of them may have tattoos and nose rings and right, right and scarred pasts. Right. But on the inside, they're really the children of God. So you have, in the Old Testament, you have physical people that look like the children of God, but spiritually they're not. And then in the New Testament, you have people that are spiritually the people of God that physically on the outside don't look that way. Like they don't fit the mold. Right? And so the reality is, is that salvation is a matter of the heart. But God uses this metaphor to show us that his desire is for all of his children to come. How often I would have gathered your children under my wings and brought them in, but you would not have it. Now, the reality is, is no matter how bad a parent wants a child to believe, it's God who works in that child to make them a believer. Right? And not only that, there's a lot of times you can actually have a situation where you have a parent who refuses to allow their child to be a believer, and yet God still works in that child's heart and brings them to salvation. Now, there's always going to be that friction. There'll be friction. In a home where you have one person that's a believer and one person that's not a believer, there's always going to be friction. But God is at work. And so, just imagine what Jesus is saying. He's not, because the reality is, is that he is the good shepherd and he does not lose sheep. And if it is his will that you be saved, you will be saved. Despite the efforts of the world around you, despite the devil, despite your flesh, despite the world around you, the devil and the flesh, that's the enemies of God, right? Despite those things, if it's God's will that you are to be saved, his will be done. But the reality is the world, the flesh, and the devil is doing everything within their power to keep people from coming to salvation. And that's what Jesus is saying. He, he's looking, he's like, he's looking down on his, it, in John 1 it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And now he's sitting on the hill looking down on the city weeping. Why? Because he came with the offer of salvation and the religious leaders, the elders of that city would not allow the children to come. You see? Well, that, that was, the, the offer of salvation was always there. Yes. But what intrigues me is the point that Christ is now 30, 30 years or so before the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, and all that. And that was culminating at this time. And I always see that as he's saying, you know, we we have done our best, but y'all, y'all refused us. And now... But- it, Here it comes. The Bible clearly tells us that it is not God's desire that any should perish. Like, in other words, in other words, the the natural fall and creation around us is on a path to destruction, and it's an inevitable path. It will happen, and it's heartbreaking not only to God but to all of creation. And the Bible says that all of nature groans and travails. 
So there is a definite sadness to the impending doom that is coming. Well, that's why you always see that part. Right. To, to reflect that he knows. Yeah, there's no he doubt. He knows that, you know, the days are coming. Well, but, but, but let me give you another example because you're, you're on to something there. Think about the story of Lazarus. Jesus went to the tomb with Mary and Martha, and Lazarus was there. And it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's John 11:35. The shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Well, why is he crying? What does he know he's fixing to do? In like literally in the next verse, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Well, why is he weeping? Because of the lack of faith. It's because, but there's several reasons. Number one. Because he is clothed in humanity with us, and he weeps with us. He's crying for his he, he sympathizes with his people. They're sad, he's sad. That's one. Number two, a lack of faith. But again, think about the lack of faith. What is the lack of faith? If you'd have come, if you'd have come sooner, yeah. right. In other words, there was something that took place out of your control. That's a lack of faith. And not only that, but... Death affects all of his creation. And here he is standing around knowing the gift of life and knowing that this world, this fallen world, had turned away from that gift of life and now was receiving the consequences for their actions. Didn't I hear, didn't I hear Jesus waited for the fourth day because of the Jewish belief? Mm-hmm. Your soul is still in your body for the three days? You talking about for his resurrection? Yes. Well, you could say that if you wanted to. The better thing as a Christian to say is this. Jesus told his disciples in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. In other words, he was in the ground three days because that was the prophecy. That was what was well, written in God. And also, tradition God. back then, they didn't have ways to make absolute sure you were dead. That's why, as the bell told, if you ever heard that, they would hang a bell and tie it to well, they, to the grave. But yeah. it, it would take three. It would take several days well, to know that they were dead. Well, tradition is to bury the next day, though. Well, they knew he was dead on the cross. Oh Jesus! I'm yeah, because they didn't break his legs. They broke the legs of well, the. He stunk him. He waited yeah. three days, so they knew that he was dead. Yeah, but the, with the with the two raised. people on the cross but beside Jesus, when he died, they broke they both of their legs. Yeah. Because in crucifixion, when he broke well, someone's well, legs, yeah. they were not able to stand upright, and their well. lungs would fill up with blood. And it was a sure, like that was the, because you could hang on the cross and live on the cross for days. Like literally on the cross and the birds picking your skin off of you. Oh. And still, you would still be alive. But in mercy, they would break their legs because once your legs were broken, your body hunched over and it would, your lungs would fill with blood and you would die. But when they got to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Why? Because he, he was already dead. dead. And not only that, there's also a prophecy in the Old Testament when it talks about the Passover mm-hmm. lamb. The Jews were commanded to not break a bone yeah. of the lamb. And so that is a, a that had a, to be that way. That, that's a prophecy of the the right, true lamb, and that his right. bones wouldn't be broken either once he was sacrificed. But um, I, I do not know a whole lot about the Jewish tradition, but I feel a lot more comfortable as a Christian just saying the reason he was in the grave three days and three nights is because the prophecy said that he was going to be in the grave three days and three nights, and he was fulfilling his father's word. Like he was fulfilling the scriptures. I, I feel way more comfortable with that. I do. There may be a Jewish tradition or something that reflects Are you that. Are talking about Lazarus? 
Yeah. Oh, you were talking, talking about? I thought you were talking about. To go and make them rise. <coughs> he, yeah. uh, he, uh, so and then the Jews dead. would really, really realize that he was dead. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. By this time he stinketh, like I said. So again, Jesus wept, knowing that he was fixing to raise Lazarus from dead. Well, he's weeping over that city, knowing that there are people that are coming to faith in that city all the time, because his spirit is at work and in, in everywhere. So but he, Israel could not take their rightful position in the world. Because of the this uh, despicable behavior of the, the same thing um, today, the leaders. Well, they rejected their Messiah, yeah. and the reality is, is that uh, <laughs> Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the true Jerusalem is the is the new heaven and the new earth. Like mm-hmm. that's the reality. The reality is, is they were looking for physical fulfillments when in reality it was being fulfilled right before their very eyes and they couldn't see and that, it. And that just boggles my mind because it's in the scriptures that they read. The yeah, but it shouldn't boggle your mind happened. because you because you know in your own but life they, that they knew these scriptures inside and out. And but you know in your own life that you can look back on your life now and see plenty of times where God reached out to you before sure, you were a believer, me. right? Yeah. And and you never oh, yeah. return. It's like but when God's time. There's that go oh, through yeah. their whole life and die and are not saved. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. And so, well, I had to put this one in your pipe. Uh, don't smoke it because we don't smoke <laughs> it. But put. Think about this. Think about the number of people, the billions of people who have lived all of their life and died on this earth without ever hearing the gospel. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't there an ignorance thing for that? No. What? Well, they got people like. You know, well, every like man has and, a God-sized hole in his heart, so every man knows. Every actually, it's not a God-sized yeah. hole. Every I man is created in the Omega Day, and we know. all. So general revelation applies to everyone, even the the pagan who has never heard of Jesus Christ in his heart knows there's a God. He's made one of his own hands and is worshiping it, so he knows in his heart there really is a God. But the reality is, it's only through Jesus Christ that we know God. And so there are people who have literally, there are whole cultures and nations of people. Well, think about before the Israelites came along. Or while that God, or think about all of the years that Jesus was working with the Israelites, that all of the Gentiles outside of there had never heard of Christ. Never heard of them, yeah. And they lived and died their whole life without ever hearing of Jesus. Right. So, you know, that that's something for you to think about. Well, what happened to those people? Because... And so, we, you know, in some circles of religion, we're taught that, well, Jesus is like God has got to give everybody at least an opportunity to believe. Like you would think if he's a fair God, he's got to let everybody have a chance. And nobody ever told them you can take that same concept and apply it to a baby in a womb. Right. Right. If, or how about a mentally incapacitated person that has never had the ability to choose anything? What do you do with them? And so the beauty of it is, is that salvation is in God's hands, not ours. Yeah. And it's not based on our will. It's based on his. And I know that he's a good God. And I know that if there's a pagan somewhere in a foreign nation that has never heard the name of Jesus Christ, who truly is his sheep, that he's going to make sure that they get the word. Somebody's going to get right. to him. Yeah, like he's right. not going to let one slip through the cracks. So the ones that never heard that weren't supposed to. Yeah, and that's that's tough that for us. To, because then you say, well, that's not fair. But the reality is, is the reality is fair is if God was truly just, well, he is truly just and fair. But if God wanted to be truly just and fair, how many of us truly deserve hell? Mm-hmm. 
Everybody. Everybody. So if God is just, how many go to hell? Oh, everybody. If God is just and He is, then everybody deserves hell. There's not one single person in hell today that can argue and say, You didn't give me a chance. All they're going to be able to say is, I'm guilty and I'm receiving my judgment. Every person that is out, how many people in heaven? There's only one man in heaven who truly deserves to be there. Jesus. Jesus. Not one single person in heaven is going to be able to brag and boast and say, I deserve to be here. But that's the whole point. What, what are they going to say? I deserve hell. So I, I try to explain it this way to people. On judgment, on the final day, when God, when Jesus as judge separates the sheep and the goats, where are the goats going? Hell. Hell. And where are the sheep going? Heaven. To heaven. Well, every single goat that is cast into hell is going to be a manifestation of God's judgment and righteousness. His judgment and his righteousness is going to be glorified in their being cast into hell. You see how that works? Y'all understand what I'm saying? Who deserves to be there? Everybody. So is there anybody, anybody anywhere going to be able to say, that's not fair that you threw them into hell? No. No. His glory, his his righteousness is going to be justified. Well, on the other side, all of the sheep, his grace and his mercy and his mercy are going to be glorified. Because there's not one single person on that side who gets to say, I deserve to be here. Because they know in their heart they deserve to be with them. And who gets the glory in both instances? God. God. And so what we have to rest in as believers, as children of God, is is that God is God, God is good, and God has never made a bad decision or a bad judgment or a bad choice. His will will be done because he's God. He's the one that created us. He is the potter, and we are the clay. clay. And clay don't have a say. Clay has to trust the potter's hands to do what he does. And the reason you are his is because before the world was founded, he knew you. And you are a gift to the Son from the Father. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was dying to redeem all of those that his Father had given him. Every single one. And not a one of them is going to slip through the cracks. He has died, he was buried, the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he and the Father sent the Spirit down to this earth to now spiritually claim the all that he died to save. And the Holy Spirit's not going to miss a single one. And if you're in here today and you understand that, there's no bragging, there's no boasting, because you know in the depths of your heart you don't deserve that. What you deserve is no. the judgment and, of hell. And, and, uh, for most of us, or probably all of us, we feel inadequate to be able to go there. Why did he pick me? I do not understand. And the truth of the matter I is, right? It. The truth of the matter is, is that you aren't adequate. The only thing that's getting you into heaven is the adequacy of his son, the life that he lived. Right. It's not your adequacy that's getting you. Right. But why did he choose me? I, because I, he's God, and he and God. you are his creation. And he can do with you what he wants. He loves me so. Yeah. Well, he does love us, and so. That's a tough thing to wrap your mind around. Why? Because we're not God. We can't see. It's easy to wrap around your your own sinfulness. Sure. 
That's that's easy. Well, so the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of sin. Right. One of the things when when God the Father and God the Son sent God the Holy Spirit to the earth, one of the things that Jesus tells us is that the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of our sins. To convince us of what Christ has done on the cross and to confirm to us that we belong to him. That's the reasons why the Holy Spirit has come. Well, think about the reactions of these non-believers here. When Jesus is confronting them with his word, with his life, with his light, with his truth, what are they doing with that word, light, life, and truth? They're, they're, they're rejecting it. They're rejecting it. Why? But he says, because you are not mine. You do not belong to it. You are not my sheep. You cannot believe because you're not mine. But and I go, so, in the, I go to the synagogue every day. Yeah. yeah. Ah, yeah. So, so watch. In the same sense, at the final judgment, there's going to be a separation of the sheep and goat. The Holy Spirit is actually at this very moment doing that behind the scenes, isn't he? Like the sheep and goat are actually already being separated as we talk. The kingdom of God is being built up, and the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world is being crushed right before our very eyes. We can't see it. No. And there are a lot of people. There's a lot of people that are. Things that are going on that shouldn't be going on. And we see that there's nothing being done about it. And it's confusing. Right. And But do you. So what is it? What is that going to get you to do? Well, the, the, the child of the world is going to complain about it. And say, God, don't you even care? The child of God is going to say. Why? The child of God is going to say this. It's almost time. We know that all things. Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. Listen at it again. We know, who's we? The believers. We know that all things. It doesn't say all good things. It says all things. So think about the saddest thing that's ever happened in your life. That's the thing. And what it says is even that is going to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And you and I can't grasp that because of the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and the despair and the misgivings and the unforgiveness. We can't grasp the reality that on the other side, when the new heaven, when we're citizens, when we're living in the new heavens and new earth, when we are known as we know as we are known, God is going to open our eyes to everything that happened here on this earth and allow us to see why it was his will and his purpose being played out every single second of every single day. We're going to be able to look back on our, he'll be able to show us in our own lives how some of the most insignificant things that you could ever think of were actually part of his plan to bring you into the kingdom. And some of the things that you thought were the most important things in your life were actually things that were most harmful. He's going to allow you to be able to see the big picture, how everything played out. And that's going to be an exciting day. Because well, oh, because we'll be there and this is what we're going to be able to say. You know, God, you were right all along. You had all the answers. You, you were always in control. And because of my unbelief, I couldn't see it. And that's tough for us to deal with because we're all fallen human beings. Is that something we decide or God decides? I've been what? studying Presbyterian. God 
picks us or we pick him. We say we're decided to follow Jesus. Or um, so. He gives you a choice. All right. So here we, we're off topic, but let's go. We're going to, I want to try to answer this. Since none of y'all will be able to make it to my church this week, I'll share with you some things that we're going to talk about this week. Look at um, Luke. Uh, I'm sorry. Look at uh, John. This is important for everybody. Actually, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back to Ezekiel first. Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel 36. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the prophets. Ezekiel 36. Now remember, Ezekiel is a prophet of God, and Ezekiel has been sent to the children of Israel in order to tell them about themselves. He has words from God to give to them. And the children of Israel are now slaves in a place called Babylon. Ezekiel 35. Ezekiel 36. All right, so I'm giving you the background of this story. The children of Israel are slaves. What choice does a slave have? None. Remember when, now, remember um, uh, uh, back in the history of the nation of Israel, they were also slaves somewhere else. Where else were they that were slaves? Egypt. Yeah, where Moses had to go and say what? Let my people go. And then God set them free to be his people. But instead of trusting God and walking with him, they began to fall into idolatry. They began to fall into rebellion and unbelief. And so God judged them all through the wilderness experience. All right. Well, they... Uh, after after they were established as a nation, King David brought peace on the whole nation of Israel, and everything was all well and good. Solomon come along, the kingdom divides, and half of the people are all now worshiping idols and going to the high places of worship. They're all praying to these false gods, to these statues, to these symbols, to these uh, gods of their own making, these idols. And not only that, they were also religiously in rebellion to God as well. Remember, he gave them the law. He gave them the, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the Levitical priesthood. He gave them the sacrifice. He gave them all of that. And instead of walking in the commands that he had given them, they went on their own path. To say that, so, whose will was it for them to worship in that way? And how do we know that? Because it was in his word. He gave us the book of Leviticus. He gave them the story of their people. He gave them everything they needed to go. But instead of doing his will. They did theirs. They did theirs. And they fell into idolatry. They fell into rebellion. And they were suffering terribly. And now they've been drug off into slavery. And a slave has no say in his life. So that's the background of the story. So now uh, Ezekiel is going to come to these people. And he's going to give them a message. Look what he says, verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. It says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Okay? So, what is he saying? Ezekiel, go tell the children of Israel that I'm about to act. And it's not for your sake, it's for my name's sake. Now, what does that mean? These are God's children, so they have his name. You get your last name from your father. father. If you are a truly a child of God, you have his name. 
You have, and not only is it his name in that sense, but it's also his word. You have his promise. You see? And he's saying, I promised that you would be my people and that I would be your God. I promise that. And despite yourself, it's not because you're good. It's because I keep my promises that I'm about to act. All right. Now watch what he says next. Verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all the filthiness from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ordinances, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. All right? So this is what I'm I'm going to paraphrase here, and then we're going to look back at the text again. Basically, this is what God's saying. Okay, my children, I'm about to do something about this situation. And it's not because you're good. It's because you are my promised kids. And because you have my promise, I'm not going to let my promise fail. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach down into that filthy world that you live in, and I'm going to drag you out of it. I'm going to wash you clean. Then I'm going to reach into that chest of yours, and I'm going to rip that heart of stone out of you. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then I'm going to put my spirit in you. And from then on, you will walk in the way that you're supposed to walk. Now, I say that. Now, go look at the text again. I want you to look at something. Verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my name. Uh, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself. For I will take you from the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove that heart of flesh from you. And I will put my spirit within you. Whose will is that? Who's doing all the action? What are the children of Israel doing? Sinning and running from him. Living in filth and apostasy. And what is God saying? Nope, you're my kids and I can't let you stay that way. I'm going to do something about this. All right, now that's the Old Testament. Now, we're not going to turn there, but if you remember in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus tells Nicodemus this. Unless a man is born of water and of spirit, he can in no wise enter the kingdom of God. Well, see, he knew that Nicodemus would know this passage because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He knew the whole entire Testament. And so what is he doing? He's pointing Nicodemus back and saying, hey, you remember how God said that he would wash you clean and rip that old heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh and fill you with his spirit? Well, remember that? Well, that's called the new birth. That's called regeneration. That's called salvation. And that's what God does. You see? But now let's turn over to John 1 and I'll show you what I mean. Let's apply this now to, to present day, which, remember, God always works. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always worked the same way. His salvation has always worked the same way. 
He proclaims His promises and you either receive those promises and believe those promises or you reject those promises and walk away. Alright, so John 1, verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So how many people get the light of God? The whole world, right? Now what that means in a sense is, and remember how you were telling me earlier how atheists even know that there's a God because everybody's born with a whole size God's eyes hole in their heart. The sun shines on the right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not only that, the sun shines on a blind man just like it does a man who can see. And just because a man is blind does not mean the sun is not shining. The reason he can't see the sun is why? Because he's blind. And we don't make new eyes, guys. Even with modern technology, they still ain't figured out how to give somebody sight. We can correct the sight that we have, but nobody gets new eyes. So that's why Jesus said a man must be born again or he cannot see the kingdom of God. God's light is shining all over the whole world, but it is only those who are born again that are able to see the light. Okay? So he was the light. He came in to testify. Oh, uh, the light there, man. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So what's that talking about? He came to the nation of Israel, and what did they do? They rejected him. All right, but now look at the last two verses. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now let's break that down. We got a couple minutes left. Let's look. Let's break that down. Don't forget, Ted had a question. Okay. For a long time. All right. No, that's at home, at All okay. right. So in verse verse twelve, as so the light shines where everywhere. everywhere yeah. All right. As many as receive him, he gives them. The right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. All right? So there's three things there. They have to receive him. He gives them the right to become children of God, and then they believe. That's the order it says right there. Well, mine's different. Well, okay. Mine says, uh, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right. Okay, to good. All right. That's it's still saying this is actually yeah. thing. So what is what is the proper sequence? Receive, then believe. Mm-hmm. All right. Receive, then you will believe. Let's think about the blind man again. Is he receiving the sunshine? Yeah. Can he appreciate it? Well, he can feel the warmth on his face, but he can't benefit from the light, can he? What is the only way that he's going to be able to benefit from the light? Somebody opens opens his eyes. And then he'll see that the sun was there all along. But the only person that can truly open a person's eyes is God. Well, it's the same way with your heart, with your human, with our spirit. We are fallen. We are dead in trespass and sin. We are slaves to sin. That's what Paul says. We are a slave to sin. We're dead in trespass and sin, and God reaches down into a world full of people. How many people are dead in trespass and sin? All. How many people is the light shining on? All. But yet God reaches down into that world and finds his children 
and says, you're not going to live like that anymore. What does he do? He takes us out of the wicked world. He washes us clean with his truth. He reaches in and grabs that heart of stone and rips it out of you, and he gives you a new heart, and he fills you with his spirit. He gives you the right to become a child of God. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Y'all heard of uh, unalienable rights, right? We get them where they're afforded to us by the Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence. We have unalienable rights. They're rights that can't be taken away from us. Okay? One of your rights as a uh, United States citizen is to earn an income, right? You have that right, that freedom to do that, right? They're not supposed to tax any of our unalienable rights. One of your unalienable rights is to be able to carry a firearm. Did you know that? The U.S. Constitution says that you can carry a firearm. Also as long as you've not been in prison. Also said it could be, it could be right. amended. Right, right. So, so watch. But your, your right to bear arms or the right to work is an unalienable right. The Constitution also says you can't tax an unalienable right. Well, guess what they do with your income? They tax mm-hmm. it. Guess what they do with your firearms? you got to pay and get a permit to carry it. They well, tax they it, right? They tax people. <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. Okay, <laughs> so that's, that's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down today. The point I'm making is this. You have rights, right? You have the right to do things. What does it mean to say you have the right to do something? What does it mean to say you have the right to do something? Freedom. Freedom, good, that's one word. What's another word? Freedom, you have the freedom to do it. Privilege. Privilege, good, that's another word. Liberty. The liberty, good. These are all good words. What else? Citizenship. So we have freedom, privilege, ability. You have the ability to do it. So think about this person who's blind and the sun is shining on them. If you give them the right, do they have the right? Do they have the right to see sunshine? Yes. Yes, but they don't have the ability. ability. But if God gives them new eyes, they now have the ability. They have the freedom to blink now and see the sun when they want to. Before their eyes were open, they did not have the freedom, the ability, the right, the privilege, the liberty to see the sun. All right, so look what he says. To all of those that received him, to them he... Uh, gave the right to become children of God. So when he reaches down and saves you and puts a new heart in you, you know what he's saying? You now have the freedom, the ability, the right to choose me. Did he pick them or yep. did they pick him? <laughs> well, uh, when, Adam was, when Adam was hiding in the bushes naked, who found who? God found him. Yeah. That's true. Who put, before, when Adam was a lump of clay, who put life in his nose? God. And if God had not chosen Adam, what would have happened? None of us would be here. He'd never be. Yeah. Yeah. God is the God, God is the king. He's sovereign. He chooses. Well, the Calvinists believe that strictly. Well, I, okay. <laughs> You're right. The Calvinists do believe that. But what I'm showing you right now, what I hope you've seen is, is that I'm showing you what the Bible says. Yeah. All right. Now watch. Look. You, you got to look because this is very important. Verse 13. Which John 1. Verse 12 says, Even to those who believe on his name, who were born. All right, so what is it called when we are saved? What's another word for salvation? Born again. The new birth, regeneration. Okay, that's what it's called when you're saved. To those who were born, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's four things he said right there. Number one, 
these children of God who now have the right to be children of God, who received him and believed him, they did not get that right by being born of blood. What does that mean? They weren't born Jewish, basically. That, well, in that time, it was they were not genetically. In other words, your DNA has nothing to do with your eternal destination. Your physical being of who you are, your deoxyribonucleic acid, your genetic makeup, your family tree has nothing to do with you being a child of God and has no play or no say in you being born into the family of God. So it's not by blood. Now, you're right, Michael, when you said that, because that was a smack in the face of the Jews, because what did the, all the sons of Abraham, what did all of the sons of Abraham believe about their eternal destination? Because I'm a child of Abraham, I get, I get eternal life. Every one of them. And a lot of them don't even believe in the, right. the New Testament. So what were they basing, what were they basing their hope for salvation on? Their blood. Okay, so look at it again. They were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Now, you have flesh. You, you willingly, you, you used your flesh today to will yourself to this Bible study. Did you not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And God allowed you the freedom of choice to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what about, uh, what about Sonia? Did she have the freedom to come today? Where is she? She chose not to come. All right, that's between her and God. It's not between me. I have no reason to chide her or anything. She made a choice in her flesh. Now, the problem with our will is that it is only as free as our nature. Let me say that again. That's very important. Please do. The problem with our will is that it is only as free as our nature. What does that mean? That means I can stand on a 10-story building and will myself to fly. But when I jump off, every time I'm going to fall to the ground and die. Why? Because my nature says, no, you can't do that. Of course. All right, so watch. Your will is only as free as your nature. And what the Bible teaches us is that Adam's kids... Every one of us, our desire is to run from God and hide in the bushes and find something to cover up all the things that are wrong. That's our nature. That's our born, natural, fallen nature. So, you are only as free as your nature allows you to be. Well, what is your desire? To avoid God. To find something to replace Him in the creation so that I don't have to deal with the Creator. That's our natural will. So what the Bible teaches is no man in his fallen nature has the freedom to or would ever want to trust God. All right, now look at the passage again. So it is those that are born not of blood, we settled that, nor of the will of the flesh. What it means is you don't just wake up one day and go, you know, I think I'll be a Christian now. In the same way you say, you know what, I'm going to stop smoking. Right? Well, every one of us in this room... The, the greatest advocates of free will are addicts. And yet they are the ones that are in the greatest bondage. They have convinced themselves that they can choose to do what they want to do. And what does their addiction say? No, you can't. Well, it's the same way with our relationship with God. 
You may think that you say, oh, well, I choose God every time. No, you wouldn't. You hate him. In our natural fallen state, we the natural the Bible says the natural man is at enmity with God. The things of God are foolishness to him. He cannot know them. So it is not by our fallen will, our see our we lost free will in the garden. We're no longer allowed to choose. If you don't believe that, get a toothache. I've been struggling with an abscess tooth for the last ten or twelve days. And as much as I desire for the pain to stop. And as much aspirin as I was taking, it wasn't my choice for that pain to go away. My body had to heal up and fight off the infection. I couldn't just say I choose for me not to be sick anymore. So I am only as free as my nature tells me. That makes sense? So they're not born of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man. So what that means is as, as a pastor, my desire is for every person that I encounter to receive, believe, and trust Christ and become a child of God. That is my wholehearted desire for all of my flock. It's my wholehearted desire for anyone that God places in my path is for them to know Jesus Christ, to trust Him as Lord and Savior, and go to heaven. But I can't, as a man, choose their nature for them. I can't declare them to be a sheep or a goat. I can't persuade them or convince them to believe. That's my will. My will is for everybody I know to be saved, and yet it doesn't matter. I can't save anybody. So it's not by blood. It's not by the will of your flesh. It's not by the will of a man, but of God. See what he says? Look at it again, and we'll finish with that because we've got two minutes left. Look what he says. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does that mean? They were born of God. They were born of the will of God. Who's the, whose will was it that you be saved? God. Now, once he saves you, once he reaches in and washes you clean from your sin and rips that heart of stone out of you and puts a heart of flesh in you and fills you with his spirit, guess what your will is going to be then? God's will. God's will. <laughs> and so, and this is what people object that. Well, God doesn't want robots. Right? That's what they'll say. Or automatons. Like, he's not just, he doesn't want just puppets that he can just put in a hand and make them do it. No. The reality is, is that we were slaves or robots to sin and our fallen nature. We were in bondage in a way that we could not get away from. Not only could we not get away from it, we were embracing our sin. We were embracing the death that had encompassed us. But God, who's rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespass sin, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So, once God saves a man and changes his heart and fills him with his spirit, well, guess what happens to that man's will? It's set free to do the will of God. And not only that, in our fallen nature as human beings... The last thing in the world we want to do is what God wants us to do. We want to do what 
We want to do. But now watch. The person who is walking in God's will is the freest person there is in the world. Because there's no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ. So if I am walking in God's will, I am the freest creature on the planet. It's only when I turn away from God's will and walk in my will Mm -hmm. that I lose my freedom. You see how that works? And so the very thing that most people cling on to is free will is a pie in the sky lie. Make sense? Yeah. All right, we'll finish it. Let me read that verse one more time. I want you to take that and meditate on it and think about what it's saying because it sets you free to love God for what he's done for you instead of trusting in what you've done for God. So it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, the new birth, regeneration, salvation, is not caused by our genetic bloodlines, our fallen desires, our fallen nature's desires, of the choice or will of someone else, but of God alone. It's God's will that his people be saved. And in the end, when we're at judgment day, guess what's going we're going to realize? God's will has been done. And every person that has been cast into hell, is there anybody in hell God's going to be pulling his hair going, oh no, I can't believe I had to throw Billy in there. No. Because God is a just God and his will is for his justice to be served. But his will was also to send his son to save a people for himself. And all of those that get to go to heaven one day are there because God willed it. We made the choice. Yes. So the Bible never refers to the children of Israel as the choosing ones. Okay. Or the electing. Right. The Bible, what does the Bible call the children of Israel? His chosen people, not his choosing people, or his elect, not his electing. So what is the emphasis always on when it's from a God's perspective? God's choice, God's election. Now, once he sets a person free, then they choose to walk with him. But it's not your choice that sets you free. It's his choice that sets you free. And if he sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Uh, Thank you for your amazing grace and your amazing love. Thank you for loving uh, broken people like us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save us. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we will be humbled in the reality that you are God and we are not. That we will recognize once and for all that... You look down from heaven and you reach down to a fallen son of Adam, a fallen daughter Eve, and said, nope, I love you too much to let you live like that. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a new heart. And I just pray that you will help us now to all walk freely in your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.